Welcome back to Transformative Teaching, a Faceted IU podcast. This is Michael Maroney, your host, and today our guest is Jason Organ. Uh, he's a Associate Professor of Anatomy, Cell Biology, and Physiology, FACET Class of 2021. He's the Editor-in-Chief of Anatomical Science Education, which he's just told me is, is the, uh, the top uh, medical education journal in, in the world. And he's also a, a host of his own podcast, Science Night. So is Science Night on uh, on Spotify and all that? It is. You can, uh, as they say, you know, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, Jason, welcome. Welcome to Transformative Teaching. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much, Michael, for the invitation to uh, come onto the podcast. I've listened to a few of the episodes and uh, I've been inspired by some of the guests. So I'm honored to be here as one of them. I really appreciate you joining us. Um, you know, we're doing this so that our, our FACET membership and really, really folks who are interested in teaching and learning beyond FACET um, can hear some of the uh, interesting things that our that our members are, are doing. And um, uh, so I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And I, so to, to get going, I, I was curious about uh, this class that you teach anatomy and you do dissection and you talk about doing team-based dissection. Yeah. And that, that is an interesting um, phrase, team-based dissection. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, you bet. Um, so, you know, we are fortunate here in Indiana to have um, really selfless residents of the state who have given their bodies for medical education. And um, that is not something that we take lightly here at all. There are a lot of places, um, you know, have dissection available uh, to learn anatomy, which I think um, it's probably safe to say that that the vast majority of the literature supports this active approach to learning anatomy through dissection, mm -hmm. or at least through um, viewing of a dissection, we call that prosection. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, there are some other learning modalities that are, that are highly effective. Um, it's just that here at IU and here in the state of Indiana, we have a population that really understands the importance of it and uh, an institution that really values um, the use of, of donated human tissue to learn anatomy. And so um, we don't take that lightly. All of that is to say that we, um, we dissect uh, donors from stem to stern every single semester, teaching the ins and outs of the human body, but we do it in a team-based way, um, where not um, not every single student um, has their own donor to work with. Um, they they team up um, and they they learn um, some of these um, sort of softer skills they call the hidden curriculum of anatomy, um, which is team you know teamwork and um, communication skills and empathy. That's a big one that we emphasize in my classroom. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I, so I'm thinking about this whole notion of like the scenes we see and of surgeries and TV mm -hmm. shows. And there is a lot of communication going on. And, you know, it, it clearly is a team that that's in an operating room. And so does it kind of have that sort of a feel where people are describing what they're going to do and what they're seeing and people are asking questions? What, what What's it like? In an ideal situation, that's what it's like. The reality is um, that students are often, you know, facing their own mortality for the first time. And so we don't have a fine oiled machine right from the beginning. Um, okay. So early on in the semester, it often looks like a lot of, you know, tentativeness. 
Um, students are not sure what they should be doing. They're looking for a lot of direction. Um, they're not taking ownership of the learning objectives that they need to meet. And um, so it, it results in a lot of um, repetition on my part, um, trying to sort of build up the confidence of these learners. Mm. Um, but toward the end of the semester, that's exactly what we're looking for. We're looking for this well-oiled machine where you've got, um, let's say that there are four students assigned to a given donor. You've got one student who's reading the dissection instructions out loud, another one who is pointing to the uh, to the structures as they're being dissected, um, and then you know somebody else at the table who is quizzing everybody else at the table about what that structure, why that structure is important, or what that structure mm. um, connects to from a previous unit. Um, because the way we approach dissection um, is different than the way that most people take anatomy. Um, most mm. people take anatomy; they take what we call a systemic anatomy course where they're learning systems-based anatomy. Here's the skeletal system. Here's the muscular oh, yeah. system, cardiovascular system. You can't do that in a dissection lab. You can't dissect the muscular system without going through everything else that's related to it before you get to it, right? The yeah. integumentary or skin system, right? Um, you can't get past that um, to get to the muscular system. So we teach um, dissection-based anatomy in a regional approach as opposed to mm. um, a systemic approach. So we might say, looking at various parts of the thorax, right? Which is, you know, the rib cage area that holds your heart, your lungs. Um, the center part of that is called the mediastinum and that's where the heart is, uh, but there's stuff behind that as well. So we, we start parsing this out, you know, parceling it up into smaller little areas. We say, okay, well, now we're going to talk about the anterior mediastinum stuff that's in the front. And then we're going to talk about the posterior mediastinum. And there's so much, uh, information in each one of these units uh, that cover all of the systems. So if we say, look at the mediastinum, we're going to look at the muscular system, the cardiovascular system. We're going to look at um, the, you know, the nervous system. We're going to look at the uh, lymphatic system and mm -hmm. all of the, all of the systems as they interplay in that region. And then we're going to connect region to region. And so, um, so that's, you know, it's a different way of doing things um, that makes it, I think, um, a more immersive experience. And it really enables students to, to, for lack, no pun intended to really dig into the matter here and, uh, and, and learn. And, uh, and so I, I just absolutely love this approach to teaching anatomy. I think it is the best way to do it. And my experience has been that students uh, tend to really appreciate it as well. There's so much, so much to talk about in, in, in what you just said. I mean, the first part, I'm just imagining the students Early on, you, you early before we started, you told me you teach uh, undergrads and, and, and graduate students. But I'm imagining the, the the students. I mean, it must feel weird to like I'm going to take this scalpel and I'm going to cut somebody. Absolutely, right? yes. And, and, and so there's this whole affective component to it, and there's also even this kind of physical. The physicality of it is 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 super interesting. Um, ha, so. Do you, do you see students' faces just go white the first time they're doing this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I would say that I used to see that a lot, um, mm -hmm. but I've done a lot of things to try to mitigate that. Um, mm -hmm. So so now I don't... So usually the way that, that anatomy, dissection-based anatomy courses are structured is there's a lecture component and there's a lab component. Um, and you know some people offset the lecture in labs by a couple of days. So there's time for people to digest the information a little bit before they come into the section room. Um, others don't. 
Um, I teach mine as a flipped classroom. So we actually, they, they watch pre-recorded lectures, but then they come in and do active learning before we do dissection as well to reiterate that information and to find out where they, um, where the, the holes are in, in the basic knowledge that they need to be able to complete their dissections. Um, but the, the actual learning happens in the dissection room. That's where they put it all together. Um, so, you know, there are, uh, there are things that we've done to try to get rid of that white face, you know, passing out um, and, you know, being completely shocked um, on day one. And that is that we don't do dissection at all on day one. Day one in the lab is come in and make observations about your donor. So we make mm -hmm. them, we make them flip the donor over from back to front and examine all the different areas um, on the surface and make comments about it. And then they go home wow. and they write um, a reflection actually about their impressions of seeing the donor for the first time. That's coupled with um, some stuff that we do before we even get into that, that um, I have been working with uh, Krista Hoffman Longton or Krista Longton, I guess. Um, she's a member of FACET as well. She's here in the communication studies program um, and she's an assistant dean in the medical school. And together we've been teaching um, for several years now. Uh, faculty and staff and um, students how to become better at communicating their science. So we actually take some of the approaches that we use at science communication, which is rooted in improvisational theater approaches. Oh. And we use that in the dissection lab. So I actually make my students do this exercise on day one before they even open up um, the table to look at the donor and start making these observations where they have to do what we call a two minute rant, um, where there are four I was going to ask you about the two minute rant. That's it. That's it. I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> I love the two minute rant. Um, and I love the two minute rant, especially because it has really, I found it to be very helpful in this course, especially. Um, and it's so outside of, you know, it's way out in left field here, um, you know, for anatomy, but we do this two minute rant where um, because there are four students at each table, I have them turn to the student that's on the same side of the table with them. Um, and rant for two minutes about something that really makes them mad. And, you know, I often tell them, if I don't hear you yelling, you're not being passionate enough, find something else. Right. And I want you to fill two minutes. It's a and loud day in the class. It is a loud class. day in the room. Right. And then um, I ask them to switch. And so the other person now rants to uh, their partner. And then after those two have ranted to each other, I ask them to introduce their partner to the other, the other pair of students on the other side of the table, but to focus not on the rant itself, but the passion behind that rant. So, you know, if a student is complaining about not being able to um, take a vacation because their boss um, has thrown work at them or whatever at the last minute, and now they can't take the time off, right? The passion that is behind that is not that um, they're mad at their boss. It's that they really value their personal time. Mm. And if you can find a way, I mean, that's just one example. There could be all sorts of things, right? If you can find the passion behind the rant, you can understand someone's perspective better. And so I try to build this teamwork right at the beginning before they've even opened up the table to look at the donor. So that way they know that when they get upset with each other and they will, because it is an intense experience dissecting a human donor. Um, when they get frustrated with one another because something isn't going the way they want it to go, they can figure out what the passion behind the rant is, and they can realize that they can communicate more effectively if they do that. 
Um, it's come back um, to help multiple tables um, with interpersonal problems um, for several years now. And uh, I'm really glad that I incorporated it into the class um, because it helps get rid of this um, this feeling like you're isolated, you're alone in this room. Instead, it builds camaraderie. You're on a team now. Um, yeah. You're working together. And now we're going to do the first thing as a team, and that is unshroud the donor and make observations. And that is not easy to do. No, I, mean, I imagine not. I, I'm sitting here thinking if I were in that situation, I'd be the, I'd be the student you'd have to worry about passing out. <laughs> yeah. We do always keep snacks on hand just in case in the office. So that way, if someone isn't feeling well, we can step them outside and let them, let them recover for a few minutes. So, you know, we do, we do have their best interest at heart, but of course, uh, of course. we want to make sure that they can get through it without that if we can. This, this notion of perspective shifting, mm -hmm. um, you, you've talked about it in, 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 as, in terms of being important for that team building, but I mean, this exercise they're about to do where they unshroud the, the, this body, I, I mean, they've got to be able to perspective shift in that moment too. Um, Correct. Do you see that come up in reflections that they write? I do. I do. So we, um, we, have, this, um, we have this first day reflection um, that students can or they can choose to, to submit or not, right? It's up to them but it's an avenue for them to, to get their thoughts on paper. And we ask them another question at the end of the semester. You know, if you want to submit this, um, you know, to earn points toward your grade, you can. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a reflection, you know, 10 weeks down the road. And how has your perspective changed? Mm -hmm. um, but along the way, we give them opportunities to engage with material that's not strictly anatomy. So it's not like, what is the innervation of this muscle, right? Or what is the blood supply to this organ? Instead, it's, what do you think about this ethical problem in the history of anatomy? Um, so I actually have collected um, resources from all over the world that allow us to look at things like medical ethics in the wake of the Holocaust um, and how anatomy education has changed how anatomy, um, anatomical donation procedures have changed, how the um, Institutional Review Board and informed consent have developed uh, as a result of the Holocaust. Mm. Uh, and I have a lecture from, uh, from a, a, a world-renowned bioethicist from Harvard, who is a, a dear friend of mine um, and works on the journal with me. And uh, she recorded this lecture that we show um, every year, and they can write a reflection about that. Because as it turns out, um, there are a lot of um, images in anatomy that have an unethical past. Um, there's an entire um, anatomical atlas, which is basically illustrations of different regions of the body that was made from victims of Nazis, um, oh, called wow. the Pernkoff Atlas. And that um, that is unethical in and of itself, but it is also those images, because they are some of the best illustrations of any of this anatomy, and they are more detailed than um, than almost any other resource for very specific areas like peripheral nerves, mm -hmm. um, for example. Um, they're still used quite often by hand surgeons and um, and plastic surgeons who need to have that fine detail uh, to help them navigate problems uh, associated with people who are actually still living. Um, and so it affects their quality of life. And so there are ethical wow. issues. Do you use it? Do you not? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that's not a question that I'm ever going to attempt to answer, right? I have I have very strong feelings about it, but there's not a right answer or a wrong answer to it. Um, so you know we give them opportunities to engage with material like that, um, yeah. 
And that I think helps their perspective shift as well. So it's okay. Now that you've thought of this, how does that make you view your donor? Right. Um, and we get some of the most interesting um, sort of growth uh, that we can, we can actually see in real time with our students by just being able to read these reflections. It's really quite a window into sort of what people are thinking. And it's, uh, it's really, it's really powerful. Yeah, I, I've always loved the use of reflection and, you know, I, I teach communication classes and we can use it in a lot of different ways in our communication class. I, I think every class they can find somewhere to use reflection in a powerful way. Very this true. sounds very powerful. One other thing that you, um, that you brought up in your, in your teaching philosophy is this commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right. And um, I'm hearing some of that um kind of cooked into even even the two-minute rant and then the, this unshrouding mm. and the reflection on that what are some other other uh things that you're doing in your class to kind of infuse this awareness of diversity equity and inclusion that's a really good question and it's something um i'm glad you asked me about it because it is something that i've sort of built as the bedrock of my career i've always viewed um DEI initiatives as the most important initiatives in education. Um, and I view it that way because I have a background that is not underrepresented in medicine or in science, but is also overlooked in academia. And that's, I'm an Ashkenazic Jew. Um, and often we are um, not seen as being um, a necessary part of DEI, even though we, we are clearly in need of representation at a DEI level. And so, um, it's one of those things that that I have always thought about. And it's one of those things that kept me up actually late at night all the time when I first took over this graduate course, because um, this graduate course that I teach fits in a curriculum. It was designed for uh, a particular curriculum here in the School of Medicine called the uh, Master of Science and Medical Sciences program. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's since been co-opted by several other programs. And I teach a whole variety of student populations now um, in this course. But it was initially written for the MSMS program, which is a school of medicine program for um, students to uh, who were from a socioeconomically disadvantaged background to be able to bolster their credentials to get into medical school. So it's a two-year program. Um, I don't do anything with the program other than teach this course, but this course was designed for that, that curriculum. Mm -hmm. Those students, a lot of them are... Um, trying to get into medical school. Most of them are trying to get into medical school. Some of them are trying to get into other professional schools. Mm -hmm. um, but all of them need to demonstrate that they can do well in a curriculum that is um, reflective of a medical curriculum. Well, the MSMS curriculum is actually more strenuous than a medical curriculum is because they're taking four or five courses at a single time. Um, they are expected to perform at a high level at all times, there are um, grade cutoffs that are required of graduate mm -hmm. students that are different than they are for medical students, um, because we're talking about uh, you know whether or not you need to hit a certain competency or whether you need to hit a certain norm, right? And yep. uh, and so you know passing grades, uh, most of the medical curriculum is pass fail. These students have to get a B minus to pass this course. They actually want to do even better. Than that because they're trying to demonstrate that they belong in medical school and with only 25 labs to cover the human body um when this course only meets two weeks two times a week 
um, there's just not any time to put down the fire hose that you're drinking from, from day one. And it used to really bother me because I knew that students were really struggling to keep up with the material, but they also needed to keep up with the material. So, so one of the things that we did a few years ago was we, um, in addition to flipping the classroom, which we had planned on doing anyway, just because it allowed us to restructure the, um, the uh, classroom time into more active learning and, uh, and take the past, what used to be passive learning. We used to record our lectures and um, students would watch them again and again and again. And we know that there's yeah. a, you know, diminishing returns with that. You're not really going to enhance your understanding. Um, it was a very passive learning time. Um, so we t- took that passive learning time and we've made it active by requiring them to fill out notebooks that, that uh, get their thoughts together while mm-hmm. they're watching these videos ahead of time. And then we come in and we re- reinforce that material. So we did that with an eye toward trying to give students a better leg up on the material because you you still have to pass anatomy by knowing the anatomy, right? It's not like yeah. um, it's not like we can say, well, you did really, really well in your understanding of the cardiovascular system, but your muscular system stuff doesn't work, right? Um, you yeah. need to know it all. And so, you know, we're not we're not sending students on after anatomy is over saying, well, this person mastered the head and neck and uh, the upper limb, but like <laughs> right. anything, anything below the thorax, we're in trouble, right? We're not doing that. And so, so we adopted what we call specifications grading, which is something we borrowed oh, okay. from, from mathematics. Um, which, you know, has had mixed success in various places, but it seems to be helping us quite a bit. And so what do we do? Um, essentially, we got rid of um, of raw scores as a determinant of your grade. And instead, um, we made hitting benchmarks more important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so students can um, demonstrate learning um, by if they don't don't receive full credit for an assignment, they can turn it in again and fix the problems and demonstrate that they've actually made a successful change in the way that they're thinking. Um, And that is equivalent to having done it right the first time, right? So for us, the emphasis on um, learning gain versus um, end result is how we refocus the course. Um, And what it's done is allowed me to stop worrying late at night that um, someone's entire grade um, is based on a score on a on an exam that is a medical school style exam. And I'll talk about that in a second, because that's also stressful. Um, but you know, raw scores on exams don't mean don't always tell you how well a student understands material, they tell you how well that student performed on a, yeah. on a stressful exam. Yeah, And so I don't worry about that anymore. Now, you know, even if you are failing exams, there are still opportunities for you to demonstrate the learning that you need to demonstrate in order to pass this course. And I am fortunate that I sit, this course sits at a time in most of these learners um, academic careers where they're not taking anatomy for the last time in their career, right? They're trying to demonstrate that they can do it. Yeah but they don't need to demonstrate that they can then end up on a surgical ward next week and understand everything going on in the thorax. They need, they, they need to be able to have the door open so that one day they can stand on that surgical ward and explain all of the thorax. Um, So we've adopted that. And I think that works well. And so I wanted to make the point about these exams because um, 
one of the other things that uh, I was going to ask you about how you do assessments in this in this kind of a class. Right. So yeah. I really firmly believe in authentic assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we know that from the literature, we know that they're really effective, but they're also effective at just creating better people right at the end mm-hmm. of it, um, better able to understand what it is they're walking into. And so we run our exams exactly like we would run them in the medical course, which means that there are um, written exams that require you to apply the information, not regurgitate the information. So if I'm interested in um, what nerve supplies the biceps muscle, right? Um, That's the musculocutaneous nerve for anybody who's (laughs) interested. (laughs) Um, And that includes- There'll be a quiz after this, everybody. That includes (laughs) um, levels of the spinal cord from cervical regions five, six, and seven. That's important information because if we're talking about um, somebody getting a neck injury at C6 and everything below C6 no longer working, spinal cord is severed, um, the student has to be able to apply what that means in terms of the function of the biceps. Well, now two of the three spinal um, contributions to that nerve are knocked out. How is that going to affect the muscle? So I don't actually ask students, you know, what's the innervation? Very rarely do we ask, what's the innervation of this muscle? Mm-hmm. Instead, we'll ask what happens to this muscle if you get a spinal cord, um, you know, truncation at this level. Um, so it's not enough, the students know going in, it's not enough to be able to identify and, and um, regurgitate the anatomy. You have to be able to apply your understanding of the anatomy um, to a real clinical type of context without it being a clinical anatomy course. We don't ask them to know anything about clinical stuff. If okay. there's a clinical sign that they need to know, we describe it for them. And then we tell them what it is in a question, right? They so don't have to manage that. They just have to be able to manage, you know, if something's broken, right? What is the outcome, right? If this yeah. is broken, what is the functional deficit? Um, that's so I'm a hard cur- I'm curious. So you've got the photo, you've got this dissection piece going on. And then like you just described what the assessment is, um, partially, there's still more to that assessment too, because there is a, a pinned donor um, exam too, right? So they have oh, okay. an exam and then they actually go through the lab and um, every um, 60 seconds or 75 seconds or whatever it is, I can never remember what we give them. Um, they have to move station to station and the the uh, answers are just, you know, what is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? Okay. They have to know the three-dimensional relationships of anatomical structures to be able to then apply their knowledge of what happens when you get an injury to this particular region, right? What's going to yeah. get injured? Um, So it's very much like taking them and throwing them into a surgical ward or into the emergency room, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Without giving them everything they need um, in terms of medical credentials, but giving them everything they need in terms of anatomy knowledge to be able to solve the case, solve the problem. Um, That's a stressful environment. Yeah, it sure is. (laughs) And so, you know, I don't want students' entire grades to be, you know, to be dependent on their ability to withstand that kind of pressure. Yeah. So we we redesigned the way we we think about our learning outcomes, right? Again, measuring the learning gain is more important to us than measuring um, the end result. Um, it, the end result is still important, but it's not as important as it used to be. Well, and the learning the learning gain speaks to uh, speaks to the learner in a much more kind of rich way, right? Right. It's, yep. Yeah. So, um, and it sounds like in the in this program. Um, folks are already putting themselves uh, under high stress because of what they're hoping to get out of 
participating in the program. Right, exactly. So they're, they're taking my class, but they're also taking physiology at the same time. And they're also sometimes taking yeah. neuroanatomy at the same time, which is also all three of those courses are ones that are known as killer courses in med school. Yeah. Right. And they're doing them all at the same time. So anyone who gets through that gauntlet deserves to be in med school. No question. Oh, wow. Well, Jason, this has been fantastic um, conversation. I've really enjoyed hearing about uh, your class. I feel like we could talk for another, you know, day. <laughs> We're just just getting started here. But um, I just I'm curious, uh, is is there anything that you would like to um, share with a, like a new faculty member? What, what what would you suggest for a new faculty member uh, who wants to be uh, an excellent instructor? What should they do? That's a good question. I bet my answer probably is different now post-COVID pandemic than it would have been before. Um, but I think the message is probably similar. And that is, um, you know, your students, your students are incredibly important and they're going to tell you who they are. You just need to listen. Um, and if you listen, you'll be able to meet them where you, they need to be met to be able to affect some change. Um, Pre-COVID, I would have said, there's really not much that you can do that is too much. Okay. Post-COVID, um, it's important to remember that you have to take care of number one and that's yourself. Um, and so, you know, we've been asked as faculty to be stretched in so many different ways that we never thought were part of our job description, including counselor, including mental health um, advisor. Um, know where your limits are, know what you have the training for, and know that there are other people ready to step in and take over where you can no longer serve your students. And that's okay. That's that's great advice. That's really good advice. I see that all the time where people want to try to be the everything um, for, for their students when really we're a part of a bigger, bigger um, system that's right. that, that, that and bigger team and full of collaborators who can who can support us and support our students. Great advice. Well, Jason, thank you for joining us. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Michael. Happy to come back anytime. <laughs>